from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Stephen, when I say California, what do you think of? Oh, I go immediately to a cliche space. I imagine the Golden Gate Bridge. I imagine Big Sur driving next to those cliffs. Coastal scenes in California. That's definitely where my mind goes first. So I might be in the minority here, but when I think about California, I actually think about oil. Really? I definitely don't think about oil. It's because when I moved to Los Angeles a couple years ago, I was just totally blown away by seeing oil wells all over the city. I had no idea they were going to be there because I had never been to Los Angeles before. But I remember driving away from LAX and on the highway coming out of the airport, you go through the Inglewood oil fields and it's crazy. The oil fields are massive and on either side of the highway, you just look to the side and all you can see is pump jacks. So I'm going to show you this Google Earth image. Um, this is the Inglewood oil fields. Whoa. So that is a very big brown area I'm looking at. Is that whole brown area oil fields? Yeah. And so here's another picture. What? That exists. There's tons of oil pump jacks next to these big houses in California. Yes. And that exists all over the state. And particularly in Los Angeles, you get these oil pump jacks just sitting right next to people's homes. I'm legitimately shocked. Like, I I feel like I know the energy business well, and I did not realize that this existed like this. I'm very surprised. And see, that's my beef with California. I have been on a crusade to prove to people that California is not the green state that everybody thinks it is. And the reason for it is this phenomenon. It's called residential drilling. And after I moved to L.A., I covered it a lot as a journalist. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. But there's something even crazier about the way that oil is set up in Los Angeles. So um, we're going to play a little game. (laughs) I'm going to show you some pictures, and the game is called Oil Well I Spot. (laughs) All right, let's do it. I think first, before I dig through these pictures, we should uh, intro the show. So this week, we're talking about neighborhood oil drilling, I presume? That's right. Neighborhood oil drilling is everywhere in California. And on the show today, we're going to talk about how it got to be that way. All right, let's get into it. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm Alexandria Herr. This is The Carbon Copy. I want to take a brief moment to talk about the new season of the Big Switch podcast. We've been working on this for the last six months. We're so excited to bring it to you. Our production team at Latitude Media has been working for years with Dr. Melissa Lott and the team at Columbia University Center on Global Energy Policy uh, to make the Big Switch. It's a narrative show about how to rebuild our energy systems. And we are back with a five-part series exploring the supply chains behind lithium-ion batteries and the very complicated economic and political forces that come as batteries take over the world. So in this season, we break batteries apart, go to mining operations, manufacturing facilities, recycling plants, and talk to some of the most prominent experts about the pitfalls and promise of our expanding battery-based energy economy. And you'll hear the trailer a bit later in the show. So if this sounds like something you want to listen to, find The Big Switch anywhere you get your podcasts. So... Tell me what you see in this picture. 
there's an oil well in this picture. Wow. Okay, so I see a bakery like with a nice blue and white awning. There's what looks like a church and a big brick wall and a car. It's it's like a Google Street image. And I, I mean, I'm not I'm not seeing an oil well. Yeah. So that tower that you see. It's supposed to look like a synagogue, but it's actually hiding 40 oil wells. 40? Yes, yes. Uh, It's called the Cardiff Tower, and it was built in the 1960s. And it's one of the first oil wells that's built this way. It's disguised in another building so that you don't know it's there. It's a strategy called aesthetic mitigation. Wait, they disguised it like a synagogue. So it's not actually a synagogue. They just made it look like a synagogue. Exactly. Whoa. Okay, this next one might be a little easier. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely easy, but it's not an, it doesn't look like an oil well. It looks like an art installation in the middle of the city. And then there's this giant tower that looks a little bit like a, an old smokestack or something, but it's painted with flowers, and it's very artsy. It's actually, you know, it's quite pretty. I like it. It's, it's very different from the buildings around it. Yeah, so you've probably guessed by now that that tower is what is holding the oil wells. It's called the Tower of Hope. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually on the property of Beverly Hills High School. You can put an oil well on a high school property in California. That is legal. Yes, it is legal. Who the hell decided to build a school right there? I mean, there's lots of buildings around it. Why didn't they just move the school farther away from an operating oil well? So basically, you can have this oil well on the property of Beverly Hills High School. Well, this particular oil well was shut down and demolished a couple years ago. But you can have something like this happen because there's no rule in California that says oil wells has to be a certain distance from a home or a school or a hospital. It's one of the only oil producing states where that's actually the case. So these wells are everywhere. Actually, 14% of all of the public schools in Los Angeles are within 2,500 feet of a well, and 7 million Californians live within a mile of a well. So it's like this really widespread problem. I mean, my jaw is like on the floor thinking about oil wells on the properties of schools. Does this have an impact on health? I mean, it's a huge problem. Aaron Brockovich actually sued that school district in 2003 for endangering students because a bunch of students got sick with cancer from exposure to drilling sites. Basically, all these people that live and go to school right next to an oil well, it's a public health nightmare. These oil wells can make you really, really sick. They're linked with asthma and lung disease and cancer, preterm birth, just like a whole host of really horrible stuff. People who live next to them are exposed to higher level of all different kinds of pollution, including PM 2.5, which is really, really bad for you and increases your risk of getting COVID. And these health burdens often end up falling hardest on California's communities of color, what environmental justice groups call fence line communities, because they're right up against the fence of these industrial sites. Communities have been complaining about this for a long time, decades. And for the most part, the science has lagged behind what communities have been calling attention to for a long time. This is Dr. David Gonzalez. He's an environmental epidemiologist at UC Berkeley, and he started studying oil wells in California during his PhD. He also grew up in California in a small town called Napomo, and it turns out there's a bunch of oil there too. The next town over had a massive oil field, uh, the Santa Maria oil field and the Guadalupe oil fields. And uh, there was a refinery near my middle school, and the largest oil spill in the state of California happened in the dunes just outside my town. Uh, When I'd go 
you know, with my mom to go grocery shopping. I would see pump jacks pumping away and didn't really think about it. I thought they looked like dinosaurs, but I didn't know anything about whether they were safe or potentially harmful for myself and my neighbors. When he was studying for his PhD, he started to research this connection between oil wells, health, and race. In several studies, researchers have found people of color, so Black and Latinx people, are more likely to live near oil and gas wells and other infrastructure like flaring. We've seen this in Texas. We're seeing this in California. And we also know that from our study and from some other studies, we've we've seen that health risks were heightened for people of color. To me, that raises the question as to, you know, how do these exposure disparities come to be? So Dr. Gonzalez started to look into racist city planning policies from the 1930s to the 1960s. It's called redlining. You've probably heard of it before. Oh, yeah, definitely. This is a terrible practice that originated in the 30s. And the the government started to grade neighborhoods by assigning them letter grades from A to D. And in those letter grades, they explicitly considered race. Yeah, exactly. Here's Dr. Gonzalez talking a little bit about that. If there were more Black people, there were more Latinos, uh, more East Asian people, more immigrants, those neighborhoods are more likely to get a poorer grade. So they graded them from A, B, C, and D. Like in a school classroom, A was considered the best, D in this case was considered the worst. And on the maps, those D-graded neighborhoods were colored red, redlined. So this practice of redlining was done by the federal agency known as the Homeowners Loan Corporation, or the HOLC. And this practice led to segregation, disinvestment, lack of access to homeownership in neighborhoods that were redlined. And today, the neighborhoods that were formerly redlined are still having a whole host of environmental justice consequences as a result. My colleagues uh, that I'm working with now have published several studies where, we, where they found uh, that historically redlined neighborhoods have less access to parks and other green space, higher risk of preterm birth, um, and other folks are finding uh, that there's more heat, like higher temperatures in historically redlined neighborhoods, higher risk of cancer. So again, this is an area where uh, the science is rapidly developing, and we're finding that people that live today in neighborhoods that were redlined 80-plus years ago have poorer environments, and poorer health as a result. So Dr. Gonzalez wanted to know if part of the reason why oil wells are disproportionately cited near communities of color today was related to this history of redlining, not just in California, but also across the country. So we got data from the University of Richmond Mapping Inequality Project, and they've taken these paper maps made by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in the 1930s and 40s and digitized them. So we looked at oil wells and whether they were located in each of these four different grades of neighborhood, basically. And the first thing we saw was a clear pattern that neighborhoods that got worse grades had more oil wells. But our goal here was to find neighborhoods that looked the same based on what we know and that got different grades and see if the ones that got the worst grade had more wells. So we did that for 17 cities. We had data from the 1940 census, so we didn't have it for every city redlining data, oil wells data, we consistently saw the neighborhood with the worst grade had more wells, significantly more wells. And that made us feel pretty confident that what we're seeing um, didn't just happen by accident. For Dr. Gonzalez, this question wasn't just scientific. It was also personal. The personal reason, actually, I learned through doing this study that my grandpa 
grew up in a red line neighborhood. I didn't know that before I did this study. The data I was working with on, on redlining was from the 1930s and 1940s, and I knew that my grandpa was living in Los Angeles at the time. So I got interested in seeing, just out of personal curiosity, since I was working with this redlining data, where did my grandpa live? And uh, got on the phone with my dad, and we found the neighborhood on Google Maps. And uh, when we look at the address uh, with the redlining data, it turns out it was a block away from a redline neighborhood. And in fact, it was in a, in a neighborhood marked industrial. So uh, we know that those neighborhoods had some of the highest exposure to environmental toxins uh, being near many sources of pollution. That must have been so surreal for Dr. Gonzalez to track down his grandfather's home and then realize it was smack dab in the middle of all this. So what was his dad's reaction? Yeah, I actually asked him about that. So yeah, he wasn't. He was, you know, happy that we could find the house on on Google Maps, and he had lots of memories uh, from that house because he spent a lot of time there. Um, I spent time there too as a kid because uh, my grandma lived into her 90s, so I, I've been at that home. Yeah, and then when I looked at where the oil wells were, you know, bringing in that element of the data in the neighborhood that my grandpa lived in, there were a couple oil wells, and and the next neighborhood over, there were many oil wells. So my dad's a Chicano that grew up in East L.A. None of this is a surprise to us. It's just just helping us understand a little bit more of the structure that, you know, my family grew up in and came up in. By doing the work, I was able to connect with my grandpa uh, and his memory a little bit, and then also learning about how these racist policies shaped the world that my grandpa grew up in. Our study, I think, adds to uh, this emerging evidence that people of color are disproportionately exposed to oil and gas wells. And that matters for several reasons. One of the reasons that matters is because communities that are racially marginalized, so majority Latinx and black communities, are not just exposed to oil and gas wells. uh, They're more likely to live near many types of pollution, many sources of pollution. And that cumulative burden of pollution, that can make health outcomes even worse. So there, I think it's important to consider the historical nature of these exposures and these environmental inequities. So this history of redlining and oil well siting, it's particularly relevant in Los Angeles. At the time when Dr. Gonzalez's grandfather was living there, when redlining was still in full force, something else was going on, a gold rush for oil. So Stephen, have you seen the movie There Will Be Blood? Yes, I love that film. That's uh, that's that's in California, right? In the in the early twentieth century. Yeah, the heyday of Los Angeles oil production. Yeah, uh, California is an oil state, and in fact, in Los Angeles, in the early part of the twentieth century, the nineteen twenties, at one point, Los Angeles oil fields produced over twenty percent of the global oil supply, which you know for the nineteen twenties was less than it is today. Um, but still, California was a substantial oil and gas producer, and continues to be. Whoa. California produced 20% of the global oil supply at one point? I know. And to really understand why oil production in California looks the way it does even today, you have to go back to this time period, the there will be blood time period. And we'll go there after the break. I'm Dr. Melissa Watt, and I'm the host of The Big Switch, a show about how to rebuild our energy systems. Batteries are finding their way into everything, from cars and heavy equipment to the electric grid. But scaling up production to meet the demands of a net-zero economy is complicated. 
And it's contentious. If every country says we need to own the entire supply chain because we want all of those economic benefits, it's going to make the clean energy transition so much harder. In a new five-part series, we're digging into the global battery supply chain, from mining to manufacturing, and we're asking what gets mined, traded, and consumed on the road to decarbonization. If we think climate change is the existential threat facing our planet, we have to be having a broad conversation about where we want to get the minerals that build these products. Listen to The Big Switch from Columbia University's SEPA Center on Global Energy Policy, available on February 28th, wherever you get your podcasts. So... Right around the time that redlining is in full swing in Los Angeles, there's this period of massive oil drilling. What happened in L.A. and the reason you have oil wells disguised as other kinds of things in Los Angeles right in these residential neighborhoods is the residential neighborhoods were built first, or at least the land was subdivided for development first, and then oil was discovered. So this is Sarah Elkind. She's an environmental historian, and she's an expert on the history of oil development in Los Angeles. I called her up because I wanted a better picture of what it was like in this early period of oil production. It was an incredible mess. So there are pictures from the oil field at Signal Hill, which is just above Long Beach in Los Angeles Harbor, and it looks like a hedgehog. It looks like a porcupine. They're just, their wells are so tightly packed. And this, this caused really serious problems with pollution and explosions and fires. The oil that is found in Los Angeles was frequently in oil deposits that were under enormous pressure. So when you tapped into those deposits, the oil came out really fast. It also came out very, very hot. That early era when it was really, really messy, 1917, a resident of Huntington Beach who stayed despite the problems there said, these oil men have taken everything except the food in the icebox. My backyard is an oil well, a sump hole. My fence is gone, and the inside of my house is a mess. Wow. Yeah. So you're getting, like, basically gushers of, like, hot oil, like, spewing out of the ground in these areas that are effectively residential neighborhoods. Yes. One of my, one of my favorite examples was there was at least one oil company in Venice in 1930 that just let its gusher run for months as a way of advertising how much oil that particular company had access to. Oh my gosh, that is wild. That is an advertisement from another era. A nonstop flood of oil spewing into the air for months like some kind of bizarre billboard. Exactly. And that got me wondering, who was regulating all these oil wells back then? In this early period, was there any kind of sense on the city level of these practices are unsafe and we need to regulate them? So there's a turning point. Oil is pretty enthusiastically embraced up through about 1930 in Los Angeles without a lot of pushback. It's a little bit, but not much. It's 1930. We're, at the, the, we're in the Great Depression and people are looking for income. So... The city is convinced to allow drilling for, in, for oil in Venice. But there's this perception that it, Venice uh, oil 
field has sort of peaked out and is and is declining very in very very quickly in the matter of a couple of years with tremendous destruction of the residential neighborhoods and that seems to really turn public perception of drilling from being something that's beneficial and is helping Los Angeles's economy grow to being something that's really destructive and contrary to the public interest. But what changes dramatically is World War II. And and the reason it changes is that California, and particularly Los Angeles, is one of the major sources of oil for the Pacific fleet. So the federal war mobilization involves mobilizing the oil industry in Los Angeles, particularly to fuel the Pacific fleet. And what that looks like is federal pressure on the city to allow drilling wherever wherever the oil is and direct pressure to to reverse or ignore those regulations that were passed in the 1930s. So basically, like, in the 1930s, after this period of huge drilling expansion in Los Angeles, the public opinion is just starting to turn against residential oil development. And at that time, at like... When World War II hits, then the federal government is coming in and basically saying, no, you can't do that. You have to drill wherever you find oil. Yeah. Yeah. So the Petroleum Administration for the war in 1943 estimated that the oil companies would have to double petroleum production to meet the needs of industry and the military and consumers in the United States. And there are a lot of folks in Los Angeles who are aware of and and frustrated by this. There's pushback of folks saying, hey, look, I'm happy to make sacrifices for the war effort, but I don't want an oil company profiting from my sacrifice and sort of wrapping itself in the flag. There was a letter-writing campaign. One of the city newspapers requested people write in about how they felt about drilling during the war. My favorite quote in opposition to this, one Los Angeles resident said, the government took my son and can take my oil, but why should I ruin my home to make an oil company richer? You know, a lot of folks opposing this opening of drilling during World War II who were saying, look, it seems to us that if if the oil companies are going to come in and drill for this, for the war efforts, it's fine, but then they should be also willing to make sacrifices and shut these wells down at the end of the war. And the oil companies refused to do this. So at the end of the war, that justification of the war emergency goes away, but the oil companies don't stop asking. And what they do is they concentrate their asks in the working-class Hispanic communities. So I'm hearing these two overlapping histories, the history of racist housing policies and redlining and the history of the oil boom during World War II. That's exactly right. And these overlapping histories are a part of why communities are still suffering from the health impacts of oil drilling. It's really important to acknowledge that redlining was not the only racist policy that's happened in these cities throughout the course of the past hundred years. There are many different policies that could have affected where those wells were sited at different times. Our study is helping to show that it looks like redlining might have been a part of shaping that. Those decisions, at least for those wells that were drilled before it was uh, deemed illegal in the 1960s. So, yeah, so the wells that were drilled at any time, even wells drilled 100 years ago, may still emit pollution that can affect people's health. 
safest thing from a public health perspective is not to produce oil and gas. If we are going to continue producing oil and gas, at least in the short term, uh, one of the policies that seems to be effective is creating a setback or a buffer zone so that, for example, you can't drill wells within a few thousand feet of where people live. So the thing is, the California state government could make residential oil drilling illegal and institute a buffer zone at basically any time. So why haven't they? Well, that's the thing, is that they've tried. Environmental justice groups, community groups, people affected by this have been asking the government to do something for decades. They've been really active in advocating for some kind of setback policy. Even since 2020, there have been two bills that would have done exactly this, shut down oil drilling near residential areas. But both of them failed. And a big part of the reason for that is that oil companies have put a lot of money and effort into lobbying against policies like this. Finally, last October, Gavin Newsom announced that CalGEM, which is the agency responsible for regulating oil and gas, would consider a public health ruling that would make it illegal to drill new wells within a buffer distance. But even that regulation hasn't been put in place yet. And it would still only apply to new wells, not the thousands and thousands of existing wells that are making people sick. I hope that our new evidence on redlining and oil and gas wells is taken into consideration by, by policymakers as they craft policies to restrict oil and gas drilling uh, near places where people live, work, and go to school. As it is, without any regulation on neighborhood oil development, California's oil history is continuing to shape the lives and health of millions. Alexandria Herr is a producer with The Carbon Copy. Alexandria, thanks. Thank you. Dr. David Gonzalez is a postdoctoral fellow at UC Berkeley. Dr. Sarah Elkind is the president of the American Society for Environmental History. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Our producers are Alexandria Herr and Jamie Kaiser. Ann Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our theme. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures. Prelude is a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. That includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Thanks, Prelude. Thanks to all of you for listening. Make sure to give us a rating and review on Apple or Spotify and send us your thoughts on social media. You can find the show handle and my handle and our producers on Twitter and send this show to a friend or colleague if you think they'd like it. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Mm-hmm.